happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Darius, great to have you here again. Hey, Jack, it's a pleasure to be here, man. You uh, put out one of my favorite podcasts out there. You're one of the hardest working people in our industry, man. I just want to say we appreciate you. Thanks, Darius. You are the hardest working man in the industry. I appreciate you. Darius, what is going on in macroeconomics? It seemed, let's say, wind the clock two months ago, three months ago, soft landing was something that, you know, if someone was on TV, they'd say it to be nice. The CEO of Goldman Sachs would say soft landing. But many, you know, uh, uh, macro analysts who, you know, like to peer behind the veil, soft landing was, you know, maybe 10%, 5% probability. But the economic data is my understanding, just looking at the prices that has come out recently, has uh, been very uh, soft landish, soft landing ish. Uh, explain what has gone on over the past few months. Ooh, it's a, that's a loaded question. So uh, I'll give you our take on it. Uh, you know, so as you know, at Forty Two Macro, we run our systematic process, what we call our grid model. Uh, that's a quantitative process that tries to forecast where the economy is from a regime segmentation perspective. Um, and it was always going to be the case that once you got into December and really through the springtime of this year, April, May, or sorry, March or April, that the probability of achieving Goldilocks and not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy was actually quite elevated, you know, in the range of 25 to 35 percent pick your economy. Um, that's up from, you know, basically zero percent uh, in, the, in, the, in the preceding, um, you know, kind of six to 12 months. So we are now in an area where the markets are apt to look around for Goldilocks type signaling. And that's exactly what we're getting, both from an economic and policy standpoint. Uh, I'll start on the policy side. Uh, nothing bigger, in my opinion, uh, than the, the the inflection in the Chinese policy, both with respect to zero COVID, uh, basically ripping off that Band-Aid. But in my important that the reopening is not necessarily the biggest catalyst coming out of China. To me, the biggest catalyst coming out of China is the fact that it appears very likely that the PBOC, uh, the fiscal authorities in China, are actually readying a meaningful stimulus package to be thrust into the Chinese economy uh, as recent as soon as Q1. Um, we got a lot of guidance out of the PBOC. I want to say Gu Xun King over the over the weekend that effectively said, "Hey, look, we're going to be targeting consumption. We're going to be targeting investment. We're going to make it easy for small businesses and private companies to get access to capital markets. Uh, we're going to take our heavy hand off the big tech industry." So they're effectively doing what they need to do to generate capital flows into the Chinese economy and ultimately allow them uh, their reopening process uh, to to grow on more sustainable footing. So that's that's number one. This is the world's second largest economy. It's going to be a big deal, at least in the first part of the year. Uh, number two, uh, with respect to the data, uh, obviously we got you know CPI data earlier today uh, that were confirming of the ongoing disinflationary trend uh, in the U.S. economy. Uh, if I can throw one statistic at you, because there's obviously a lot of statistics within the CPI report, but in my opinion, at the, in terms of the CPI, we get two sort of separate sets of statistics uh, each time we get the CPI in the morning. I would argue the first, most important statistic in the morning at 8:30 is the uh, is uh, core services x rent of shelter, and that number decelerated. Uh, from 3.2% uh, uh, to 1.2% on a three-month annualized basis, and that's the slowest print we've seen since June 20. Uh, we also saw some pretty significant movement to the downside in measures of underlying inflation, albeit to levels that are very inconsistent still uh, with the Fed's mandate. Uh, these are the numbers that you get throughout the day from the Cleveland Fed, Atlanta Fed, et cetera. Uh, median CPI, just anchoring on that, for instance, uh, decelerated 110 basis points to 5.5% on a three-month annualized basis. Obviously, well north of anything that's comfortable for the Fed's perspective. But these are numbers that are coming down from levels that look like, you know, 9, 10% uh, in recent months. And so it's obviously given the market two thumbs up to believe in this sort of, you know, when my friend Bob Elliott over at Unlimited Funds, uh, him and I had a discussion yesterday. Uh, he, he termed it uh, the transitory Goldilocks, which ultimately we believe this is exactly what markets have moved to start pricing in uh, really since um, kind of late December. 
So transitory Goldilocks, Goldilocks uh, phase where economic growth goes up, but inflation goes down. So that's really good for the economy, really good for risk assets. Yeah, I mean, would you say this is a, this has been a surprise? Because I mean, I think a a lot of analysts, I think maybe it was even mainstream, had anticipated that growth would uh, decline a lot, especially after you know you had those con- two consecutive quarter over quarter uh, real GDPs prints that were negative. Um, yeah, I mean, has this been a little bit of a surprise? Uh, again, not not from our perspective. Um, so you know, you've been you've probably heard me on different podcasts, different shows, et cetera. Certainly, you know, you obviously get our research, but uh, you know, it's been the we've always found at the table that the fact that the U.S. economy in particular has a lot of resiliency to it. Uh, no, look no further than the labor market to understand that level of resiliency. You know, I'll throw a couple of statistics at you. Just coming out of today, we had jobless claims decline to, to two hundred five thousand initial claims. That's a you know secular low. Uh, continuing claims has been inflected. It's in, in, inflected to the downside actually in December, and now we're tracking at 1.6 you know million uh, down from like 1.75 million a couple of weeks ago. So we're now actually seeing incremental strength uh, in the labor market vis-a-vis the lens of jobless claims. A variety of other metrics uh, continue to show strength. Whether you look at real consumption, uh, real PCE growth tracking at three percent on a three-month annualized basis. Um, you know, you think about nominal employee compensation which is my opinion, the number one thing the Fed is focused on because the labor market, uh, the tightness of the labor market, in my opinion, is they're kind of driving their mandate at this at this particular juncture. You know, that number is at 6.1% three-month annualized. And obviously, three-month annualized, you know, CBI is somewhere, in, you know, got a one handle on it. So there's a lot of real income growth um, that is being generated, you know, particularly in the U.S. economy now. And then you look abroad, obviously, China ripping off the Band-Aid with zero COVID, adding stimulus to that mix is going to create a positive growth impulse there. Uh, well, you know, jury still out in terms of how big the growth impulse there. You know, we've seen China build out the global economy in 2008, 2009. We see it do it again in 20, uh, 2012, 2013. We saw it in 2016, 2017, saw it in 2020 as well. Will it be a, size, a program as big as those or will it be, you know, something more moderate, more tepid? I don't think we know the answer to that, but we do know the Delta is positive. And then lastly, that's obviously going to be quite positive for Europe, which itself was already improving from a sequential standpoint, from a growth data standpoint. You know, going back to November, December, we already saw the leading indicators in Europe really bottom out uh, at the height of their energy crisis. And a lot of things have really inflected to the positive side. So right now we are in this transitory period where the markets were forced from lower levels and risk assets, higher levels and in interest rates to acknowledge the fact that things got a lot better relative to where they were, let's say, in November, um, you know, using that as an anchor um, in terms of uh, economic data. But it's not in our opinion, it's not going to last. Okay, so it's transitory, not going to last. Yeah, I mean, if we're in Goldilocks and so we say we're in Goldilocks uh, now, I think what's important is like, is it going to be Goldilocks in the future and and for how long? You know, because if it's Goldilocks and it's going to get more Goldilocks for the next year, easy, simple asset allocation, right? If you're a subscriber of 42 Macro, uh, you know, buy stocks and the riskier the stocks, uh, the better. The riskier, the higher beta, the better. Let's buy Bitcoin, let's buy Ethereum, Solana, why not? You know, all, all the risky stuff, go long in in goldilocks um mm-hmm. so is that your asset allocation and and if not why not yeah great question so uh so we'll start by saying just in terms of thinking about market risk uh you know in goldilocks or in any other other, other three group four group regimes that we, we track you know goldilocks what you typically see is that uh reward it, it tends to be um positively uh correlated to risk uh, and has a positive upward slope meaning the more risk you take from a volatility and covariance perspective, vis-a-vis our back test, we back tested everything that ticks vis-a-vis that regime segmentation process. 
the more risk you take, the more the more return you tend to get uh, in these types of environments. Now, again, we are not in Goldilocks from a re- economic standpoint. Growth is still trending lower. Inflation is still trending lower. We are technically in what we call deflation. It's just a more milder form of deflation than we had experienced in recent months, particularly in the global economy. And ultimately, that third derivative inflection, that positive third derivative, is actually catalyzing some more uh, Goldilocks-type asset market performance, right. given the starting point of very negative, very defensive positioning amongst investors. Okay, th- thanks, Darius. I just want to hone in that. So technically, we are actually, in the in the real economic world, in a world of deflation where growth and inflation are falling at the same time, yes. uh, which historically is very bad for assets. It might be okay for assets now just because inflation has been so high. But you're saying the, in the world of asset prices, in the matrix, that's trading as if it's Goldilocks. Yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And, and the reason for that, again, I, I think it's twofold. One, the starting point, you know, we were, you know, you go back to late December or even, you know, uh, late September, early October, um, which is really, in my opinion, where this, a lot of this stuff inflected from an international standpoint. Uh, you know, positioning was extra- extremely bearish. In fact, if you look at positioning now across, you know, most assets that would be, you know, risk assets or anything in the long duration space, you know, investors are still leaning very short of risk parity type strategies. And so I think what you're seeing now is the combination of, you know, better than expected news on the economic front in terms of faster decelerations and in inflation than expected, and not necessarily today, but obviously the last couple of footprints, and then better economic activity than expected. And oh, by the way, the world's second largest economy is waking up and stimulating. That is new news that investors were not positioned for and ultimately been forced to price in, uh, if only because of short covering. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so how are you thinking about asset allocation if we're in deflation, but assets are trading as if we're in Goldilocks? Yeah. So let, before we even get to asset allocation and, and our thought processes you know, on portfolio construction, which I, you know, I believe we specialize in at 42 Macro, I think we also have to consider the full distribution of probable economic outcomes because it's mm-hmm. not just this transitory Goldilocks that we have to contend with. You know, as you know, you've seen our research, uh, you know, we always help investors, you know, f- understand that full distribution of outcomes vis-a-vis our modal outcome scenario, our right tail risk scenario and our left tail risk scenario. And we're constantly using data to help investors understand, hey, what's the probability of those tails? And are we seeding share to the tails from the modal outcome or are we seeding share from one tail to the other tail? And ultimately, that's how we think about um, constructing portfolios to take advantage of, of those changes in probabilities. Um, with respect to the modal outcome, it's our bias that and it's been our bias for an extended period of time now, which is the U.S. economy is unlikely to go into recession at least until the second half of this year, probably not until Q4 of 2023. And so that process of you know de- gradually decelerating and building up momentum to the downside is going to take a while. And as long as that process takes a while, you're going to continue to have a tight labor market that is creating inflationary pressure vis-a-vis wages. Um, and so that's something that, in our opinion, is likely to cause the Fed to you know, tighten more relative to expectations, both in the first half of the year with actual rate hikes, but it's also going to tighten relative to expectation in the second half of the year relative to not cutting rates relative to what the market is currently priced in. Don't forget, markets are already, and if you look at Fed funds futures, markets are effectively calling for the Fed to get to uh, 5% uh, in March and holding there through November and then uh, enacting 50 basis points of rate cuts and back-to-back meetings to close out the year. I think we could easily go to 550, if not 6% on the Fed funds rate in this process, because history shows you tend not to see significant decelerations, significant breakdowns uh, in, in wage growth, in the tightness of the labor market absent a recession. So as long as we're not in a recession, you should expect the Fed to continue to anchor on labor 
uh, which it, 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 it signaled that it would continue to anchor on labor and ultimately give deliver more tight policy uh, than we expect. And in respect to the second half of the year, obviously, if the recession starts later, that means the Fed's not going to have any data from a labor market standpoint to cause it to pivot and actually start supplying the market with liquidity. So we think 2023 is going to be a year in which the Fed is, is likely to disappoint investors, uh, both to the upside and rate hikes, and also um, to the downside and, and, and rate cuts relative to what's currently priced in. So that's our modal outcome perspective. That is, in our opinion, the number one driver of asset markets on a medium term duration, you know, kind of one to three quarters forward. Um, so that's that's kind of in the center of the distribution. What's on the right tail of the distribution, which I think the markets are very clearly re- responding to now, is this transitory Goldilocks you know, phase. Uh, I don't believe that transitory Goldilocks phase has legs you know, into the second half of the year because there's a variety of catalysts that I think are very much likely to to cause asset markets to sort of, you know, kind of pivot from focusing on that. Um, let's start with going back to the U.S. economy. What we're going to get, you know, obviously four Fed meetings between now and June. But in my opinion, my opinion, I think we have to be very comfortable or very, um, very as investors, very keen to be focused on the March and the June FOMC. March is on the 22nd and June is on the 14th. And the reason I say that is because as long as we're in this transitory Goldilocks type environment, the risk to asset markets is a Fed that just says, I don't care, right? You know, I don't care. Screw your Goldilocks. You know, I'm concerned about the labor market. And oh, by the way, uh, just a quick tangent, the Fed pivoted in December. It hasn't been priced in. Well, it got priced in a little bit in December. But since then, obviously, uh, it's been become less of a, uh, an issue because, you know, the markets are obviously focused on other, other dynamics, namely China and, and disinflation. But the Fed pivoted in December uh, in, two, in two ways that I think are really important for every investor to understand. One, they upgraded their evidentiary standard from clear and convincing evidence to substantially more evidence. In my opinion, I think, one, these are actual legal terms. Don't forget Powell's a lawyer from Carlisle. And so in my opinion, I think that is a direct signal that, hey, look, we don't just need measures of inflation. Let's go back to our median CPI friend, right? You know, it's at 5.5% three-month annualized. Trim mean CPI came in at 4.7% three-month annualized uh, in, the month of, uh, in the month of December. You know, these numbers are going to be below the Fed funds rate in one or two meetings. I think the clear and convincing evidentiary standard would have said, okay, that's enough. The Fed can get to the sidelines, you know, dock the boat and just watch the this inflation process continue from there. Substantially more evidence, in my opinion, suggests that the Fed is probably looking for measures of compounded inflation through month annualized, month over month annualized, uh, really three month annualized and, and longer durations than that to tell them that we are actually going back to and potentially through 2%. Because don't forget, we can't just stop at 2% because if we stop at 2%, we're going to reaccelerate in the in the subsequent inflation cycle and two is not going to be the mean. Two is going to be the, the lower boundary. So the Fed has to you know, con- you know consistently think about um, inflation and, and subsequent business cycles as well. So number two, with respect to the Fed's mandate, which I would argue maybe even more important than number one, which is the Fed upgraded the labor market and its reaction function and downgraded inflation. So it's effectively the Fed pivoted from the thing that is causing the markets to be most excited about a Fed pivot to a thing that should cause markets to be least excited about a Fed pivot because it's the thing that history shows is least likely to break down ahead of a recession, which ultimately means they're going to be at it for longer. So uh, I do believe that is that's going to cause investors to be for the Fed is going to force the market narrative back to where it is, which is we're not done. We're not going to be done for a while. And, and when you think we're done, we're not going to cut. We're not going to give you QE until they all hell breaks loose. And I think uh, markets are going to be forced at the very at the very latest this year by the summary of economic projections, the dot plot, and the uh, and the and the core PCE and unemployment rate 
uh, forecast in, in the June FOMC to, for the Fed, for everyone to realize that. It may happen in the March FOMC, but I don't want to make a big bet on that. I, I certainly believe by June FOMC it'll happen. Right. Okay. So the Federal Reserve is now more focused on the labor market and less focused on actual inflation. Like I know Powell has been talking about the labor market a lot and wages, but is there any particular comment he made or something that the Fed did, some sort of data release that you call the Fed, uh, say they, they, they really have switched their, their focus? Yeah, no, I mean, just go back to the December, um, December FOMC, the December 14th. I mean, it was very clear and consistent that, hey, look, we understand that inflation's coming down. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah, we understand yeah, yeah. inflation's coming down, but look, the, the labor market is very inconsistent with our inflation mandate. And so the, in, and not only did Powell echo that in the, in the press conference, we've heard subsequent members of the FOMC come out and reiterate that. And we also heard it from the Fed minutes. And one final thing in that, in that Fed pivot scenario in December that I think is underreported across financial media, which is um, the cohesion of the dot plot, in my opinion, supports our view that when the going actually gets tough economically, which we believe by the second half of this year, we'll be on that real path towards recession. Right now, we're kind of in this muddle down through period before we really start, before the gradient really starts to accelerate to the downside. Our model, our grid model, has the probability of deflation rising starting in the middle of this year and you know going to 80, 90%, which means we're just going deeper and deeper into the regime. And so that's when I believe that recessionary process really starts to take hold Ultimately, landing us in recession uh, in the in the in the you know by Q4 of this year at the latest Q1 of next year. But going back to that cohesion in the dot plot, that lack of dispersion, to me, it signals that there's not going to be a lot of debate amongst committee members and amongst participant uh, uh, committee members throughout the year when the going actually gets tough, when the unemployment rate actually starts to rise. You know, when PMIs, the services PMIs, are actually consistently you know, in the, in the, in the forties and GDP is, you know, tracking at zero to, you know, slightly negative when those data points are really starting to come out, the fed is not going to sit there and go, Oh my God, I got to start cutting interest rates and I got to start doing QE. They're going to say, I told you so. Yeah. I'll give you two statistics, Jack. Um, my two, two of my favorite statistics, I'll start with the December, um, uh, summary of economic projections where the fed, uh, uh, introduced, uh, its latest, uh, forecast for core PCE and the unemployment rate. And so at the December SEPE, or sorry, the December FOMC within that SEP, mm -hmm. the summary of economic rejections, the Fed called for uh, core PCE to decelerate to 3.5% by the end of this year, December 2023. Uh, from that time, it was uh, at 4.7%. We've never in the history of the core PCE time series dating back to 1950, late 1950s, seen a 120 basis point deceleration in core PCE without a recession. And so implicitly, the Fed knows that, hey, we probably need a recession to achieve our inflation mandate. But to me, I think that's less relevant in terms of um, their, their likely reluctance to, to pivot on uh, the second half of this year when the going actually gets tough economically, domestically. Uh, the unemployment rate forecast call for uh, the U3 rate, the headline unemployment rate, to spike to 4.6% from 3.5% in December. That's a 110 basis point rise. And we've never seen a 110 basis point rise in the unemployment rate over a 12-month time frame without a recession. So in my opinion, I think this very cohesive unit of the FOMC are implicitly forecasting a recession, which means when we start seeing recessionary-like conditions, the markets are not going to get what they want out of the Fed when that happens. And that's going to create some real significant problems uh, in the middle of the year, uh, to say the least, starting in the middle of the year, in my opinion. 
Darius, I, I didn't know those two data points uh, specifically. That's very interesting. And to me, it's kind of, kind of a, is further evidence of a view that you and I share and a view that's been kind of on full display for almost a year now, which is the Fed says that we'll hike to X and the market doesn't believe them and mm-hmm. the markets rally. And then they realize the Fed does hike to X and then markets realize, oh, shoot, uh, <laughs> we were wrong. And then the market says, the Fed says, we'll hike to 2x, and the market doesn't believe them. The market rallies, and then the Fed does hike to 2x. Um, yeah, so you have almost you have close to 200 basis points of, of cuts from the, you know, it's, uh, it's like I think Fed funds futures is 5% or just shy of 5% in May or, or June or July of 2023. And then the end of 2024, it's close to 3%. So what is the market doing where it thinks the Fed's going to cut by 200 basis points? Obviously, if, if a recession happens and it's very deep and severe and long lasting, that would happen. But in what scenario other than uh, a deep recession would the Fed cut 200 basis points? Yeah, no, it, one, it has to be a deep recession that is deeper than their expectations. Because again, I, I believe this is a Federal Reserve Board committee that is implicitly forecasting a recession to begin in 2023 via their, their the projected deltas uh, in core PC and the unemployment rate. And so in our opinion, I think the market... Um, is going to continue to get, you know, a lot of pushback from the Fed and ultimately get uh, the reconciliation process that we've consistently seen over the past nine to 12 months. The Fed always wins. You know, this is why there's an argument, uh, 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 a saying out there that says, don't fight the Fed. Um, you know, I, I think you can, at the best, as an investor, try to front run the Fed by using the, you know, the, the analyzing and forecasting the data that they have their eyes glued to, not data that, you know, you think is cool or is a cool chart. You know, it's, uh, that's what we, I think we specialize in 42 Macro is, you know, figuring out what these people care about and then forecasting that accurately on a consistent basis. And so in our opinion, uh, I think the market's going to continue to get a lot of pushback from the Fed, which is why I highlighted the March FOMC and the June FOMC as potential catalysts for a reversal in this transitory Goldilocks narrative. Um, because again, you know, I, I, you know, in the absence of those, uh, those, those the updated summary of economic projections for the market to confirm that, hey, look, they mean business with their unemployment rate, their growth forecasts, et cetera, there's a Fed that's not going to pivot then, you know, the, the market can do what it wants in terms of, you know, anchoring on China reopening and stimulus, anchoring on the Goldilocks um, data that we're getting out of the U.S. and global economy uh, at the current juncture. Um, but one thing I will say is, you know, we haven't talked about our left tail risk scenario, which I think is, is, is you know, somewhat credible. It's less credible now than I think it was uh, prior to, um, you know, prior to seeing the Chinese stimulus uh, headlines over this weekend, uh, which is if we're wrong and the U.S. economy has less resilience, than we than we than we believe uh, it does in terms of the balance sheet health of the consumer and, and corporate sector, which we can talk about. Um, if we're wrong on that and a recession materializes sooner, it hasn't been priced in. Like it, 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 it not even close to being priced in. You know, we look at four different metrics to track uh, recessions vis-a-vis previous business cycles and see you know kind of you know the current levels and and, and the current deltas relative to you know levels that they've achieved in prior business cycles and, and deltas and the speed with which they got there and you know if you look at financial conditions um, anchoring on the Goldman's uh, financial conditions index if you look at investment grade credit spreads uh, high yield credit spreads and then the va- relative valuation between high beta stocks which have more leverage and are more levered to the economic cycle than their low beta counterparts you know at a fifty percent valuation premium you know we're we're like 50% higher than levels that correspond to a non-recessionary cyclical slowdown, let alone an actual recession. And you, you know, you look at, um, you know, uh, things like uh, credit spreads, et cetera. You know, I want to say, uh, you know, investment grade credit spreads are at 160 ish basis points. 
you know, on a mean basis, if you look at the last three recessions, we got to 453 basis points over. Um, you know, that includes, you know, the shallowest recession in U.S. economic history in 2001, one of the deepest in, in, um, in, uh, in, in the GFC, and ultimately, and obviously the 1991, 90, 1990 to 1991 recession, I believe, is the third shallowest in history. So you got a lot of different recessions in there in terms of the deltas from where we are today in terms of having priced that in. High yield credit spreads, Jack, 428 basis points wide at, at the current juncture, you know, or sorry, you know, a little bit less than four now. Uh, you know, if you can get the 1500 wide on a mean basis in terms of the last three business cycles. Um, so again, I just, it, it's very clear to me that if we're wrong on the resiliency of the economy and the recession starts sooner than say Q4 of 2023, uh, you know, maybe even one or two quarters sooner, then the market's going to have a problem. But again, I think that's a declining probability from a risk management standpoint in terms of our three scenarios. So uh, your modal outcome and your left tail risk are different in terms of timing. Modal outcome is recession won't happen until Q3 or Q4 of 2023. Left mm -hmm. tail is that it starts much sooner. But is the outcome different uh, in terms of like, could a recession happen in Q3 or Q4, but it's as you know severe as it just starts three months later? Yeah, so the, so it is a little bit different from a risk management standpoint, right? Like you need to understand that, um, not you, but uh, we need to understand as investors that, hey, look, it might be safe to go in the water and buy a bond today in the left tail risk scenario. Because again, ultimately it means that, hey, look, the Fed is at the bare minimum, let's say, you know, one or two quarters sooner to effectively pivoting, you know, when they will, you know, finally pivot, which I believe is a 2024 event um, in terms of supplying the market uh, with liquidity. Um, that's a big difference if you have to wait six months on that. If the, if the modal outcome scenario remains the modal outcome throughout the year um, in terms of resiliency of the economy, Fed pushing back against market expectations for easing, Fed pushing back against, um, you know, sort of um, easing of financial conditions broadly uh, throughout that process, then it's very unlikely that you can buy a bond at this particular juncture, in my opinion, because, again, you still have the whole entire, you know, kind of major developed central banks, ex-China, um, you know, you know, tightening monetary policy, including Japan. They're actually going to do a review of the side effects of their you know, quantitative and qualitative easing program at their meeting next week. Um, in our opinion, I think that's a leading indicator that there are going to be continued um, you know, revisions uh, to the yield curve control policy that ultimately result in a tighter monetary policy out of Japan. So you got BLJ there, um, and obviously Kuroda's out of here in, in, in April. And so his re he might be setting his replacement up to actually do a little bit more on that front. I'm not making that call. I don't know if I know enough to make that call yet, mm -hmm. but certainly in moving in the tightening direction. Obviously, Fed's still in the tightening direction. As long as China is, you know, Adding in a growth impulse to the global economy, which again we expect it will uh, certainly in the first half of this year, Europe's going to be in a better footing from an economic standpoint. So ultimately, that means the ECB can tighten more, um, and then what's probably currently priced in, and the Bank of England um, is likely to be able to tighten a little bit more uh, than what's currently priced in. So we're still in this liquidity cycle downturn globally, you know, ex-China from a fixed income standpoint. And so I think it really makes the, the, the bond buying call here today a very difficult call and one we don't agree with. Um, so I think that's, that's the big, big difference. Hmm. And that's a, that's a timing thing. You think in, in three months timing. it might be time to buy bonds, but not now. The only thing that matters in markets, man, it's time. time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey there. Sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. 
If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Darius, I want to ask you about growth because you know you follow very uh, complicated economic data and then you make it even more complicated by the way you sort of analyze and process it. I'm a simple guy, okay? That's why I like PMIs. Manufacturing PMI, above 50, economy is growing. Below 50, it's contracting. The manufacturing PMI, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, I think it's below 50 and the services PMI is below 50 as well. Maybe that's just one or two recent, and you know, you know the data infinitely more than I do, but... And they've they've come down from being in their 60s, a pretty straight line to 50. Now it's 49. Next is 48, 47. It sounds like the economy is slowing pretty pretty quickly. And I get the labor market is um, uh, you know robust, and unemployment rate is 3.5 percent. Um, but you know, I mean, recessions can start when the em- employment rates at unemployment rates at 3.5 percent, right? What what in terms of the underlying economy? I get the labor market setting labor market aside, which is very strong, of course. What gives you sort of hope in the resilience of the American economy that we, you know, wouldn't start to go into recession uh, like right now? Because you know, I mean, recession MBER dated it to uh, December two thousand and seven, I think, right? And no one was thinking, unless you're a macroeconomist, was thinking, you know, a recession start before things to start to get bad, as you know. <laughs> so great questions, Zach. Um, you know, I, I think PMIs are a useful tool. Um, because they do, you know, they're a very timely leading indicator that a lot of people care about. And so at the bare minimum, it helps you aggregate what other investors think about the, the deltas on growth. And so that's, they're very important, but I don't know that they're particularly instructive in telling you what the actual level of growth is. I've done obviously a, a tremendous amount of econometric analysis, um, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, trying to relate PMIs back to other indicators in the economy. And, um, you know, they tend to be, you know, direction, they tend to be, you know, fairly co-integrated, but in terms of using it as a, as a, as a, as a, as a tell-all metric on the economy, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat dangerous. Um, particularly in the context of the manufacturing PMI. Don't forget, if you look at the U.S. economy, 82% of our GDPs comes from the service sector, services sector. 86% of employment comes from the services sector. So when you talk about a manufacturing sector in the U.S. economy, you're talking about like, you know, your pinky. Yeah, relative to the rest of your body, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So I, I just want to make sure investors are, are aware of those types of statistics. But, you know, the one thing I would say on, on, on um, just in terms of, 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 you know, kind of some of the hard data that we're looking at, you know, to confirm the fact that you know, we're not a recession, just look at the services consumption. It real, you know, this is data through November. You know, real services PCE, personal consumption expenditures, uh, which a PCE in aggregate is, you know, 70% of the U.S. economy, you know, it's, it, it's, at, it's compounding at 3.3%. On a three-month annualized basis, that number is like more than fifty percent higher than its pre-COVID trend. Um, and why is you know you actually why is you know why why do I believe in this resiliency story? And why and ultimately the resiliency story just means it's going to take us longer to get to recession than the consensus uh, believes at the current juncture. Because again, Wall Street consensus is recession first half, markets bottom first half, they rally in the second half because the Fed pivot. Our our view is you know somewhat you know, not necessarily quite the perfect opposite, but it's, it's quite quite different. We think markets you know chop around and you know using S and P as an example between let's say thirty eight hundred and forty one hundred, 
in the first half of the year, which I think you can trade with a bullish bias because of all the go transitory Goldilocks type dynamics. But ultimately, that's going to give way to a really crappy second half because, again, you're going to run out of that Chinese growth impulse. You know, U.S. growth is going to start to accelerate to the downside alongside all the other uh, major economies in the world, ultimately leading into a recession uh, process uh, in the U.S., you know, Europe and a large parts of the developed world, you know, certainly by Q4 or not certainly by Q4, but likely by Q4, certainly by the first half of 2024. So, you know, we have problems in the second half of the year. And ultimately, I think that back half rally story that Wall Street is really anchoring on, I, 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 would, I would take that and sell that as far as I can see. But in terms of the resiliency now, the, you know, the household sector balance sheet is it's just in, it's in it's as good a shape as it's ever been. I mean, there's, I make no bones about that. You know, consumers, if you look at their checkable deposits, you know, they have $7.9 trillion of cash on their balance sheet right now. Uh, you know, when you add up set checkable deposits and, and money market fund shares, you know, that number is 5% of, of, of total assets, which is the highest number we've seen in the history of the time series. Consumers have never had this much cash, both in terms of the at nominal dollars, but also in terms of the share of their overall balance what, sheet. What about 2021, though? 2021, what do you mean? It's, it's above 2021? It's, 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 the chart looks like this. Okay, I mean, okay. You, you could be long with the chart. Yeah, I'll send it. I'll send it to you so you can show the viewers. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 extremely bullish from that perspective. Now, obviously, there's some sectoral and compositional uh, issues in terms of you know maybe the lower end consumers from an income a distribution perspective have less checkable cash than their than their upper income counterparts. But don't forget that upper income counterparts tend to do all the spending in this economy. If you look at the top two um, deciles of consumer spend uh, of consumers by income cohort, they actually account for forty to forty five percent of total spending. So, you know, the, the rich folks in this country really outkick their coverage from a, from a spending standpoint. Um, but that's just the, the, these kind of the, you know, the asset side of the balance sheet. If you look at the, the, the liability side of the consumer balance sheet, you know, household debt is 101 cents on the dollar if you look at uh, the ratio between total debt and nominal disposable personal income. So that number is, you know, well down from, you know, where it was in previous cycles. I think we peaked at 134 cents on the dollar uh, heading into the GFC. So consumers have not levered up. They have the ample capacity to lever up and they certainly have the cash to service that debt, but they don't really need to because again, debt service ratios, which I think is as important as an indicator as, as anything when you're talking about uh, financial tightening and, and ultimately the business cycle, you know, the household debt service ratio is practically an all-time low uh, at 9.8% uh, at the current juncture. So, you know, this U.S. consumer, uh, you know, this U.S. consumer-led economy, 70% of GDP, you know, has ample capacity to keep muddling through, particularly if inflation continues to surprise the downside because it flatters real incomes in the process. Now, ultimately, that's not a sustainable dynamic because, again, the Fed, in our opinion, is going to take the policy rate into a restrictive set of setting. It's not restrictive now, but it will get restrictive. And ultimately, that restrictive process will start to, you know, kind of feed upon itself and ultimately cause some negative outcomes in the labor market that kind of put all that to bed, in our opinion, uh, likely by Q4. Okay, right. So uh, tell me about the... Um, household, household debt service cost that, that's very low, even though, even with the Fed, Fed increases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's uh, data through the third quarter. So uh, one thing I'd also call out, um, you know, obviously housing has fallen off a cliff from a sales and activity standpoint, and that right. makes a lot of sense. Mortgage rates have skyrocketed to, you know, north of six, maybe even 7% uh, last time I checked. Um, but if you look at it on, a, on, a, on an effective basis, the nationwide effective mortgage rate is 3.42%. And so the reason new home sales, pending home sales are down 35 to 40% year over year is because you, me, and no one we know is stupid enough to trade their 3.42% mortgage for a 7% mortgage. So no one's moving. Because no one's moving, we continue to see uh, activity collapse uh, in the housing market. But from a leverage cycle standpoint, it's just not, it's just not that onerous. 
you know, the household uh, debt service ratio, if you look at mortgage debt specifically, is at 4%, which is practically an all-time low. And then household debt, uh, mortgage debt at 66 cents on the dollar is, is well shy of pre uh, of, of prior business cycles, um, you know, namely, you know, heading into the GFC, we're at 99 cents on the dollar. Um, you know, so this is, in my opinion, I think, you know, the, the bloodbath that we're seeing in housing that obviously is causing, you know, the goods disinflation, you know, the, the, the contraction in the goods economy, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the manufacturing PMI, et cetera, leading indicators obviously falling off a cliff. I think that stuff is more contained than the average investor realizes, which ultimately means the economy is more resilient than the average investor realizes. And that sounds bullish if the Fed weren't tightening. If we weren't in a liquidity cycle downturn, it'd be fine. It'd be great. You'd be buying everything. The issue is the reason I think the market has upside, you know, kind of resistance in this in this kind of push pull between transitory Goldilocks and our modal outcome scenario is because the economy is resilient. And you historically just have never seen a significant, you know, kind of breakdown in wage pressure absent or outside of a recession. So the Fed's going to need to get that uh, if it wants to actually achieve uh, the man uh, its inflation mandate. Mm. And uh, yeah, so, so the. Um uh, I remember the banks, which are go going to report tomorrow, actually on the thirteenth. They mm -hmm. Bank of America for their third quarter, they had this uh, chart of just people's income. Like, oh, if you if in twenty nineteen you had two thousand dollars in your bank account, now you have six thousand dollars. You know, not this is actual actual bank deposits, like actual actual money. So yeah, the the strength of the consumer balance sheet very strong. You know, wages are going up by a lot. Um, and you had fiscal stimulus that uh, is a hangover of that. Uh, but it's it's not headed in the right direction. We're headed towards this, right because credit card credit card spending uh, is going up. Things are getting more expensive. Uh, prices over the past year have gone up more than wages. That may not be true over the next year. Who knows? But um, you know that is eating at people's purchasing uh, power. So, do you see that uh, uh, being a, a disinflationary force or a, a um, recessionary force of just? Things cost way more money, so people don't have as much as as much money, and they're having to you know use their credit card instead of using their actual money. Well, I don't think we need to make it that complicated. The the the, the recessionary force is going to come from people losing their jobs, right? Once we go into a, a significant decline uh, from a corporate profitability standpoint, you're now going to put the spotlight on C suites to you know make hard decisions. You know, you know, we, you know, it's been very difficult to find and retain talent in this business cycle. I own a business. It's very difficult. Um, to find and retain talent. This is why we're seeing you know wage growth at levels that we have not seen since the you know early '80s, early to mid '80s. Um, so that's part of the reason. Part of the reason for that, obviously, we've seen a, a pretty significant secular decline uh, relative to trend in the total amount of the labor force, in, in the total size of the labor force. Um, the Fed's forecast or the Fed's uh, estimates uh, suggest that you know we're missing basically three to four million workers relative to that pre-COVID trend that we were on in, in the terms of the size of the total labor force. Our data, our analysis suggests it's actually closer to six to seven million people. There's effectively six to seven million missing workers relative to the prior trend um, in this current, uh, where we are today in this current business cycle. And that's obviously flattered a lot of wage statistics, uh, irrespective of the mess that was the average hourly earnings uh, last Friday. Um, you know, you had a significant decline uh, in, uh, in average work uh, weekly hours, had a lot of part-time employees that dragged the number down which is why I like looking at more stable measures of, of income and employment. Like again, nominal employee compensation, we get that uh, at the end of the month in the, P, in the PCE report. And then every month, uh, or sorry, every quarter, we get the employment cost index data, which again is corroborating that well above trend pace of nominal employee compensation uh, growth rate that we, that we observed in the most recent months. So in our opinion, it's gonna be, it's, 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 this, is a, this is a very boring 
stereotypical business cycle. You know, everyone, you know, the, like if you part of the, the part of the problem with the pandemic is, you know, and one of the things that's been, you know, great for me and our firm is we all spend way too damn much time on Twitter, you know, chasing around charts and passing charts and looking at charts. And the reality is the economy doesn't move as fast as our retweet function. You know, there's a there's a series of processes that need to take place in the economy, namely corporate profitability needs to erode and to a significant enough degree that corporates actually start to you know shed headcount. And that decline in total income is likely to be what causes the recession. But again, I think we're, you know, two to three quarters away from that, at least. Mm. And I often find, Darius, I'm curious if, if you, you agree that arguments that did not work over the past, you know, let's say nine months to make a predictive trend sometimes have better success going forward. And I'll share the example I'm thinking of, which is, let's say in May, this chart started to go around on Twitter that people's uh, income had gone up only 5%, but, you know, costs had gone up 9%. So the consumer is basically down negative 4% uh, in terms of their actual income. And, you know, if you'd use that to predict a recession, you would have been wrong because, you know, bond prices, stocks outperformed bonds, all assets did poorly, the Fed hiked, you know. Um, however, I don't know. And the economy I'm, wasn't in recession. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm starting to think that that argument, you know, might might have some... Uh, legs going forward, and I think particularly if you think of like the the bottom quartile of of, of income, uh, the, the bottom decile of of income, like a lot, you know, a lot of uh, that income goes towards um, non discretionary things like you know gasoline, electricity, uh, stuff the stuff that is the the most volatile. And over the past three you know three months has gone down, but was really really spiking higher. So uh, I, I'm curious your th- your thoughts on that. You know, my general thoughts is that you know this. Th- as awkward and weird as this cycle has been from a, you know, in terms of reopening and then the, the carding in the goods and the carding out of goods and how that's, you know, kind of really had some, you know, pretty significant influences, both to the upside and downside and activity and, and in prices. I think we're now starting to get to the point in the business cycle. And I'll cite a couple of statistics for you. If you look at the ISM uh, services and manufacturing statistics, you know, there's a lot of obviously subcategories or sub indices within that. Uh, within both of those, you have the uh, supplier delivery times uh, surveys you know, percentage of respondents that are reporting slower supplier delivery times. Those things spiked in the pandemic, went way up, and now both of them are at or below their structural means, their long-term means. And so it's telling you that we're now back, and at least that's an indication, you know, whether you look at port data, et cetera, et cetera, China reopening, we're now back at a, at a, at a kind of a normal, normal, I use that with significant air quotes, business cycle type, type dynamic. And ultimately, we're just kind of on that pre-recessionary path of, the long and variable lags of monetary policy, one by one, catching up with, you know, borrowers in the corporate sector, borrowers in the household sector that are ultimately getting kind of um, restrained from incremental consumption and investment. Now, that process takes a while. It's going to take a while. And ultimately, again, I think, you know, as long as that process, you know, takes a while, you're going to have what looks at least on a surf underneath the surface from a wage and income standpoint, an economy that can handle more rate hikes from the perspective of the Fed, which is going to deliver those more rate hikes. And ultimately, you know, when we get to the point of the process where it can no longer handle any more rate hikes, i.e. we're, you know, getting very close or in recession, um, that in our opinion, because the Fed is already projecting that it's going to be a problem. Markets are going to have to scream, kick, yell like like kids at a toy store throwing a tantrum to get the QE. You know, this is not a Fed that's going to go, oh, my God, the unemployment rate's at 4.6 percent. I got to throw QE on the market. No, it's going to say, well, we forecasted that. It's going to say we forecasted that. What's the big deal? And so that, in my opinion, that's we're going to have a wily coyote moment at some point in the second half of this year. I believe we'll start right around mid-year because there's a couple of things we haven't talked about yet, which is net liquidity. 
you know, mm-hmm. we got the debt ceiling this year. You know, we haven't had a real good one since 2011. You remember that one? That was fun. <laughs> and it's, it's the same setup. Democratic president did probably way too much from a from a fiscal policy standpoint. Aggressive you know, Republican Party who comes in and says way too much. We need to stop. And, and it's the same setup. Exactly what happened with Obamacare and, and the Republican Party and led by the Tea Party or not even led by the Tea Party. Uh, taken hostage by the Tea Party at, back in then. And now, you know, I don't know what they're calling themselves now, but whatever this this small faction that's uh, taking the Republican Party hostage at this current juncture, you know, they're going to demand large concessions, you know, and big changes to entitlement spending, et cetera, et cetera, that the Democrats, you know, based on their previous history of hiking the debt ceiling three times during the Trump administration without any concessions, there's going to be a big battle there. Mm-hmm. And that big battle, in my opinion, could create uh, some market volatility as well in the middle of the year. So it's all kind of setting up for like, you know, at the bare minimum, flat to up, positive, slightly positive first half. You know, certainly and it's very positive relative to a consensus that is calling for a really negative first half, including an earnings recession to, you know, no, the, the, the pain, in our opinion, from a risk asset standpoint, is certainly uh, likely to be concentrated in the second half, if only because the economic pain broadly, not just in the U.S., is going to be concentrated in the second half. And there won't be any central banks, you know, running at, you know, first first back and call to uh, to deal with that from a policy standpoint. Right. Yeah. So liquidity is super important for an investor is basically the, the ease with which you can enter and exit a position, very correlated with asset prices. And it, you know, in this case, liquidity basically means money uh, can be from the government, from the central bank, from commercial banks, uh, from, from from savings. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're you have a, a chart of net liquidity and we can we can put it up, you know, maps quite closely with uh, risk assets. Uh, it had been going down, as people can see, uh, do you expect it to continue to go down? Uh, and I know you, you. There's a particular force that has kind of changed your your calculus. That's new. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we 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 came into the year with the expectation that you know this trend of high or lower highs and lower lows in net liquidity would likely continue. Uh, and uh, you know, citing our net liquidity model, uh, where we take the Fed balance sheet total assets, subtract both the Treasury general account balance and the reverse super facility balance from that uh, as a more approximate measure of the amount of liquidity. Uh, the government, you know, the U.S. dollar liquidity that the government is either supplying or taking from the market. And based on our read-through of what we're seeing out of Janet Yellen uh, from the Treasury Department, it's likely that may not be the case, at least in the first quarter of this year, and potentially all, well into the first half of this year, which ultimately puts a floor into markets as well for, for the time being. Um, so I'll start with um, you know kind of the first step uh, in terms of her cash management techniques ahead of this debt selling fight, which, by the way, she's $64 billion away from. On a you know thirty something trillion dollar pile of of, of of debt subject to that debt limit, so uh, we're pretty close now. Pretty close, you know, from from that perspective means that she's got a bunch of tools and levers, who to pay, what to pay, you know, draining down the Treasury General account balance, which we believe will continue uh, throughout the first part of this year. Um, that's that's something that's going to be positive from a net liquidity standpoint because again, that draining of that Treasury General account balance is effectively supplying liquidity uh, to the real economy. Um, or it's taking trap what was you know liquidity that it was removed from the real economy and giving it back uh, to the real economy. Um, what's likely to also flatter net liquidity at least in the first you know quarter and potentially through the first half of this year is the fact that Yellen is actually targeting more T bill issuance as a cash management technique. Um, if you look at the last couple of auctions or sorry the last few auctions of T bills, we've seen uh, net debt increase by eighteen billion dollars relative to the previous run rate of T-bill issuance. So she's accelerating T-bill issuance 
uh, as, a, as a as a cash management technique as well. And so that accelerating the T-bill issuance is actually putting more supply of treasury bills on the market. And it's actually compressing what had been a very deeply negative spread between T-bill yields and similar maturity money market rates. Now, why does that matter? Well, Sorry, were T-bill rates lower or higher than money market rates? T-bill rates had been persistently ne- negative relative to money market rates. Yeah. Lower, relative, yeah, yeah. The spread oh, was yeah, negative. Well, they were lower than well, money market exactly. rates. Yeah, yeah. yeah re- persistently negative. And, the, you know, because there was a shortage of T-bills and that shortage of T-bills, in my opinion, was part of the reason we saw, uh, you know, asymptotic rise and exponential rise in the reverse repo facility balance because those money market funds couldn't find assets to, 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 to invest in. And so the Fed hiking interest rates, you know, the reverse repo facility became a very attractive investment vehicle for those types of funds. Well, now if the Fed is yelling is flooding the market with T-bills as a cash management technique throughout this first part of the year, first quarter, maybe even the first half of the year, that's ultimately going to compress that spread and allow those funds from capitalizing, you know, the Fed balance sheet, basically, to capitalizing shadow banks, et cetera, uh, in the money markets, which ultimately allows shadow banks like hedge funds, you know, you know credit funds, pension funds, et cetera, not pension funds, but uh, other types of uh, shadow banks, mortgage lenders, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They now have the ample capacity to take on incremental leverage if they choose to and ultimately can inflate asset markets. And so, you know, those are two dynamics from a debt selling standpoint that are positive today vis-a-vis Janet Yellen's decisions in terms of how she's managing uh, managing the, you know cash ahead of that catalyst, but ultimately are going to prove to be doubly negative dis- uh, 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 issues in the future, not the least of which is because we're going to have a political battle, very likely to have a political battle about the debt ceiling, which could result in a downgrade or something like that, or fears of a downgrade, if you will. But more importantly, when we get to the other side of this whole process, you know, Treasury general accounts going back up could potentially see reverse repo facility spike again uh, into the second half of this year. So um, it's very likely that, you know, what could be a sideways to uptrend in net liquidity and from the perspective of our model uh, to something that gives way to a much more negative trend in the back half of the year. So it all sets up for, I wouldn't say like the a good first half and a bet and a terrible second half, because I, I think we're already kind of fully priced from a, from a good first half perspective, maybe not fully priced. Could you get to 4,200 on the S&P? Sure. I mean, I've been surprised by markets, you know, for the last 14 years. So yeah, it's not, it's not going to change. But I think when you're getting above 4,100, 4,200 in the S&P, you're starting to get back to valuation levels that no buy sider I talk to. And I talked to all the, the biggest firms and you, you know who's of the world mm-hmm. can support from a, from a bottom up standpoint. You're going to be seeing stock prices and credit, credit spreads that are just nonsensical in terms of where we are in the business cycle. And so I Especially think when interest rates are at 5.5%. Well, that that's the interest rate to five percent. That's the that's the money man. That's the, uh, the 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 financial advisor type crowd and the retail investor crowd. Right. You know, you've seen our research where we say you know we we went from dating our our, our hot sexy girlfriend Tina, you know, you know the, the oh, yeah, girl yeah, next yeah. door. Now we're back to the you know our old you know homely you know kind of you know the, the the ride or die hold you down type girl Tara. You know, we used yeah. to date Tara in middle school, right? Where you know you had a significant spread uh, in terms of uh you know kind of short term. Uh, investment grade debt instruments relative to the yields you could get on, let's say, a dividend yield on the S&P or other type of uh, riskier assets. And so uh, at the end of the day, that, sp- that spread will continue to rise, as particularly as you know asset market valuations come in, equity risk premiums compress, uh, et cetera. Um, and so ultimately, you have, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is Fed doing more than expected and valuations getting, you know, just kind of in, in, in to levels that are really inconsistent with where we are in the business cycle, you're going to have institutional investors that are unwilling to chase the market beyond a certain point. But I would also argue in the first half of the year, because of that flattering of net liquidity that we're going to see, uh, particularly through the lens of what uh, Jenny Yellen is doing, 
um, and, and that likelihood that there are P and TGA, you know, combined to offset quantitative uh, tightening, potentially, you know, overwhelm quantitative tightening. You know, you're going to have a floor under asset markets as well um, that is also supported by, again, by China reopening stimulus. So, I mean, it, these are some violent cross currents, Jack. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this for a really long time. You know, I think if you if you didn't do all the research and you did not understand the full range of probable outcomes, you really just wanted to anchor on one side of the distribution or the other. You could get really bullish or really bearish here. And I think it's very easy on a day like today where the market gets, you know, kind of you know, Bitcoin's ripping, markets ripping on the CPI to get really bullish and not understanding that full range of probable distribution associated with the modal outcome and the left tail. And I think just as easily as we are here today. You know, we could come back in a few weeks and if Jay Powell has a super hawkish press conference on the first and markets are down at 3,800 and it's like, no, 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 no. Everything we thought in December was correct. I think you will. I think you will because it's it's going to be 25 basis points. Um, I mean, it could be 50, but it's 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 25. They don't don't surprise the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 98%. And then, then of course, Powell doesn't want it to be a devilish meeting, so he's going to go hard on the reporters. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally, totally. And yeah. so, yeah, now then you're at 3,800 in, in mid-February and then everyone's super bearish again and people are going to get their faces chopped up. They're going to get their arms, legs, everything chopped up this in the first half of this year. But ultimately, I do believe it's appropriate as an investor to trade this period of time, this transitory Goldilocks period of time with the bullish bias, because at the bare minimum, if you're in a range, you in theory should have lower realized volatility. You might start to suck in some more CTA, uh, you know, kind of uh, systematic investors uh, at the margins. And just generally speaking, everyone is position bearish. If you can, we can, we can obviously observe that uh, in the CFTC data uh, across risk assets and across risk parity type instruments. And so um, it probably means you want to trade markets of the bullish bias, but we're probably already close to the upper end of that 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 choppy trading range. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be chasing it here, um, you know, with any any gung ho fervor, but Ultimately, I do believe that that range that you could trade with a bullish bias is probably going to either get punched in the mouth on, Mar- on, on March 22nd by that uh, SCP and that dot plot, or at the bare minimum, definitely double punched and kicked uh, on June 14th by the SCP, the dot plot. And oh, by the way, the debt ceiling is going to be an issue. All these things are going to be coalescing at the same time. Growth is starting to inflect lower across the U.S. and global economy. Yeah. So, so what does that mean for, for asset allocation? Like if someone had been, you know, overweight cash, like short, short stocks, short, um, the high beta stuff, is it time to, to call it in and go, go long? Well, so where, where if it's, it'll depend on where we are in that range. I'm using the S and P as a, a catch all proxy that we all right, understand, right. you know, at, at 4,100 on the S and P it's time to go short. Yeah. But at 3,800 on the S and P it's probably time to go long as long as we're in this kind of, you know, this regime where we're debating where the, the modal, where the descent, the distribution is very flat. It's basically what I've been trying to say for the past 45 minutes is that the distribution is very flat. You know, the right tail risk is probably just as probable as the left tail risk, or maybe slightly more probable than the left tail risk, but it's probably just as probable as the modal outcome. But once that distribution starts to change in terms of the shape of distribution, by the middle of the year, that right tail risk probability is going to be declining and the left tail risk probability is going to be rising. And that, in my opinion, is going to be a, a big issue. So, how you posture yourself as an investor with respect to beta depends on where we are in the markets. Right now, I would argue, you know, it's it's near fully priced. Could you have another hundred points of S and P? Sure, why not? And again, like I said, I've been surprised many a thousand times in this in this game we play. But from a from a from a style from a from a from a alpha standpoint, I think the cyclical leadership that we've observing and this stuff, you know, I talk to with our buy side clients all the time. You know, our model started calling out a rotation in the cyclicals. I want to say at the beginning of last week. 
And that's obviously been very much augmented uh, by, by these developments from a Goldilocks signaling standpoint, USCBI, NFIB data we got a couple of days ago, China stimulus. And I think that is durable in terms of the first half of the year, because again, right now the markets are comfortable pricing in better than expected growth globally. And there's no reason for them to be concerned about that until again, we get into the back half of the year where that liquidity cycle inflects and ultimately that growth cycle inflects. So when it comes to within, so beta is its own story, as you say, but when it comes yeah. to within the stock market in terms of sectors, it sounds like you're saying it's 2021 again, get as much copper, copper miners as you can get your hands on. <laughs> I don't know about copper because I don't know anything specifically about copper, but I do believe that copper is probably going to work. I mean, base metals yeah. are breaking well, it's going out. Up. Uh, Copper's going up. Yeah, no, but yeah. So like, uh, you know, we, we run a, a variety of quantitative tool signaling tools at 42 Macro and, and on our volatility adjusted momentum signal, base metals broke out a few weeks ago. You know, and it's one of those things that didn't make a ton of sense then. But, you know, once you start seeing China stimulus headlines, you're like, oh, no, wait, somebody do something or at the bare minimum is willing to bet on that, that that's something developing. And so I do believe, again, it's it's dollar down, which I can't believe we did an hour long interview. Haven't talked about the U.S. dollar, which is the dominant feature in any macro model. You can the dollar, you know, the way I think about the U.S. dollar, you know, it is the residual of the supply and demand of global credit. You know, we, you know, Jeff Schneider obviously has been the kind of a thought leader, uh, you know, kind of in terms of the euro dollar system, which in our opinion is the dominant system of, of how, you know, credit is, you know, created and, and destroyed across, uh, across borders. You know, the dollar is breaking down, which by the way, it's breaking a very significant Fibonacci retracement level here, right? If you go back to the January 2021 low in the dollar to the, I want to say September, October high in the dollar, we are breaking past that 50% Fib retracement level and bull markets or bear markets don't correct beyond the 50% retracement level. And so in my opinion, that might be a pretty significant signal that, you know, this global dollar credit machine is actually getting activated here, uh, could potentially be transitory. Now, why is that the case? Well, the world's second largest economy is reopening and stimulating. You know, if you go back and look at the past, you know, 15 years of, of Chinese monetary and fiscal policy, in 10 of those 15 years, monetary uh, and fiscal policy in terms of the impulses, both peaked in Q1. And so, you know, China, you know, they tend to like the jam, you know, come out the gate swinging, you know, come out of the, you know, come out of the round swinging and, you know, they want to jam it in here. And so I think we're going to see a ton of monetary stimulus in Q1 out of China, a ton of fiscal stimulus in Q1 out of China. And I think that's what's supporting things like copper, you know, this recovery in cyclicals and sectors and style factors and cyclical sectors and fixed income relative to uh, the defensive counterparts. That to me is an easier call to make than, you know, kind of should I just be long or short beta? Because again, to me, that depends on where you are in that choppy violet range, you know. Right. What What about the uh, uh, tech tech stocks, and particularly like the high value, high growth, profitless tech stocks? Obviously, the worst year possible for twenty twenty two was for them. But is there any silver lining in the short term in twenty twenty three? Yeah, no, I mean, if you can buy a copper miner or, or a piece of copper, you can buy a, a high value tech stock. But again, that, that to me, that's that's not that as an investor, that doesn't. That doesn't make sense, you know, in terms of with, with the broader asset allocate, with the broader sort of distribution of outcomes. Will it work? Yeah, these things are all correlated, right? S&P goes up, all that stuff goes up. You know, S&P goes down, all that stuff goes down. So, I, you know, they're not going to decouple. But from the perspective of what I think has the most risk reward to the upside, and let's call it the first quarter to maybe even the first half of this year, I think it's the cyclical sectors and style factors. Um, because, again, we have a weak dollar. What does weak dollar do? It inflates emerging markets relative to developed markets. It inflates cyclicals relative to defensives. It inflates commodities, physical assets uh, relative to digital assets. Why would you fight weak dollar 
when you can just go make, it's easier to make money a weak dollar in those types of trades, as opposed to, you know, the stuff that Kathy Woods been buying the dip in a whole way down. All right. Dangerous question, uh, Darius. So the dollar is, is, is getting weaker. Um, and we're in Goldilocks or a uh, transparent transitory you know, Goldilocks. Transitory Goldilocks. The the technical Those term environment is sounds like a good environment. Goldilocks has risen to a uh, market significant uh, degree that market participants yes. need the price in. <laughs> we're trading like Goldilocks. Okay, so dollars weak, trading like Goldilocks. Well, how about Bitcoin? Bit, I mean, Bitcoin is doing exactly what you would expect to do. I mean, the annualized return. By the way, we back tested all this stuff. The annualized return of Bitcoin in Goldilocks on a, is 400%. 400% on an annualized basis. This is data going back to the history of the entire Bitcoin time series. When we, the U.S. economy or the global economy are in grit in, in the Goldilocks, in the GRID, Goldilocks is Goldilocks, the annualized expected return is 400%. Bitcoin is finally waking up and realizing that this probability of Goldilocks is A, you know, rising, but B, much higher than it was, you know, from a probability standpoint a few months ago. Now, again, when we get to 4,100 on the S&P or maybe slightly above that, I don't think Bitcoin has a hope in hell of getting much beyond where, where, wherever it will be at that time going, uh, uh, at, you know, where it will be at that time when it, when it gets there. But again, I think it's, again, I think you just have to trade risk from, a, from that perspective of that, that violent choppy range that I think we're, we're going to be stuck in for a while. But yeah, this yeah. is a short-term thing for Bitcoin. Yeah, no, yeah, well, it's, 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 everyone's duration is different, right? But again, what I'm trying yeah. to outline is I think we can be in similar type of market dynamics that we've experienced year to date between, you know, at least through the March F, into the March FOMC. And if the March FOMC is not the catalyst, then I don't really see another catalyst to get us to inflect out of this particular uh, market, you know, this market narrative, this market activity um, in terms of market leadership, et cetera, until we get to the June FOMC. I think by the time we get to the June FOMC, not only will it become increasingly clear to market participants that the Fed has already done more than is currently priced in today, but they're less likely to do uh, to pivot when the going gets tough. You know, so they're going to hike more by the June FOMC than what's currently priced in today, which is a problem relative to the business cycle. But they're also via their summary of economic projections going back to those core PC unemployment rate forecasts that we highlighted earlier, and maybe even their GDP forecasts as well. They could take that from 0.5% to zero or even negative by the June FOMC. I think that combination of all those different dynamics on top of you know the debt ceiling issues that we could have politically, the inflection in the liquidity cycle on the other side of passing the debt ceiling, and oh, by the way, the inflection and in growth, uh, both from an expectations and realized perspective, uh, once the China impulse runs out, and we're left with, you know, kind of everyone's left swimming naked. I think the middle, by the middle of this year, the market's going to really start to look at, you know, the second half of this year and say, there's a lot of bad stuff happening and there's not a lot of good from the perspective of, of liquidity provision. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. What about China itself? Those, those Chinese stocks have been on an absolute tear the past few months. Yeah, no, I mean, they got a ton of upside from here. I mean, they're, they're not as cheap as you would think they are. I did a bunch of valuation work uh, earlier today on, on Chinese stocks relative to their global counterparts, but they're still you know, relatively cheap, you know, versus, you know, things like uh, U.S. equities, uh, Japanese equities. So it's not, you know, Chinese, Chinese equities definitely have upside. In fact, I, I don't, I, I don't see a legitimate reason why China's Chinese stocks have to inflect negatively in that second half process that we see coming down the pike. Uh, I think they could probably, you know, they're, they're, China's stocks are going to do this while everything else is doing this. But I do believe uh, yeah. Chinese stocks can probably continue to grind higher in that, in, in that environment because, again, from, a, from an institutional capital allocator standpoint, 
you know, everyone pretty much got sucked out of China. You know, you basically had the U.S. and China threatening to splinter apart from a from a regulatory standpoint, which ultimately made it uninvestable for a lot of investors. Um, and I think, you know, the lack that the fact that, you know, Xi seems to be kowtowing to the West in terms of, you know, some of this regulatory policy initiatives that they're changing, you know, three, three red lines in the real estate sector is getting pulled back a, a little bit. You know, I think at the margins, you know, you could see persistent institutional flows into the Chinese equities because, again, um, you know, they just people just haven't been there uh, for a while. And it's going to be one of the real legitimate bull stories of 2023, you know, particularly when you get into the back half of 2023. Where it's not like, you know, right now everyone's kind of benefiting from a high, a higher than expected probability Goldilocks, which by the way, our model is always called the whole entire time. We always thought, you know, this period of the spring between December and the spring was going to be a reasonable chance of achieving Goldilocks economically, but that's going to dissipate. It's going to dissipate in the US, it's going to dissipate in Europe, going to dissipate across broad swaths of the global economy. And China is going to increasingly be left alone um, in terms of, you know, maybe even having ability to continue accelerating. I'm not so sure, but, you know, I have to answer that today. Yeah, uh, no, no. A lot of data to analyze between now and then. So you think the VIX uh, stays pretty, you know, twenty twenty five ish in this in this next short term Goldilocks thing? No, no, no. I think the VIX could easily break into the teens. You know, maybe trade between I don't know eighteen. Yeah, and lower. 20. What, what, what I what yeah. I meant was not thirties and forties. No, no, no. This is this is not where we where we are. Okay, transitory Goldilocks is not consistent with VIX above twenty. You know, Goldilocks is not consistent with VIX above twenty. But again, let me, I want to keep, I keep saying, I want to make sure everyone hears transitory Goldilocks. We are not in Goldilocks. It's just that the probability of Goldilocks is accelerating in the U.S. and global economies, at least according to our models. And that was the least position for outcome if you look at investor positioning. And so markets had to move aggressively in recent weeks to try to price that in. And they may continue to move aggressively to price that in. I just think it has a cap to it. We're not rallying to 4,500 or back to 4,800 on the S&P. Because again, we still have this liquidity cycle overhang. We still have a, a business cycle overhang in terms of likely heading into recession uh, in, in, in the back end of this year. You know, again, our, our expectation is Q4, so the commencement of that could be as late as Q1 of next year. Yes, the market is not necessarily in the economy, not necessarily in Goldilocks. The market is trading as if it is in Goldilocks, and your models are saying it's you know possible that they will continue to trade in the Goldilocks for the short term, and people should be aware of that. Yeah, for one to two quarters at most. Yeah, there we go. Well, uh, Darius, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always. And thank you everyone for watching. Appreciate you, Jack, man. Always a pleasure. And uh, come check us out, 42macro.com. If you want to see all the analysis uh, in our portfolio construction process, which takes all this analysis and helps investors make and save money uh, with actual, uh, you know, actual ideas, risk-managed ideas. There we go. Thanks and uh, have a good one. Appreciate you.